like my kind of my theory of language evolution in general is that like languages grow and then they they like innovate and then they inspire and eventually like people will like migrate from language to language and but then there are other people who will stay and i think that this is kind of like it goes down to some like aspects of human nature where there are people who tend to be more interested in change and people who tend to be more interested in staying where they currently are Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode 108, recorded on November 2nd, 2022. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host, Bryce, we finished part three of our three-part interview with Jane lazari Lesby while talking about the Rust programming language. Can you, how much, how much can you say about what's been going on in Rust? Uh, I, I can say that there there's like some top level interpersonal breakdowns that cause and some just like structural issues that kind of exacerbate the cause those I would say where the like the kind of central governance body the core team became siloed from parts of the project and it caused trust breakdowns across the project and miscommunications mm-hmm. and interpersonal conflicts and it basically boiled over and we had to be like okay this structure isn't working we need to figure out a new way to do this and solve these problems and so we're working on redesigning and like evolving that top level team and kind of like how we how we go about kind of the the most general governance of the project but like the actual like teams themselves like lang lives everything is they've been functioning very effectively kind of right now i like to say like we're we're working more like an archipelago than an org tree um so it's like a lot of kind of independent but like you know we, we work together and we like cross-pollinate but there's not like a central place for us to easily get together and communicate very often hmm. yeah I, I i think um for for open projects governance models are really hard it's really hard to get things right yeah um you know there's i think often you end up between one of two extremes there's like the benevolent dictator for life model um and then there's the like sort of committee model yeah and, which uh, which we call we termed it here it's bdfl benevolent dictator for life and yeah. then there's btfn benevolent team for now yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. and it's gonna it's gonna catch on if i can remember it and not make the uh the listeners wait but uh it's gonna catch on bdfl versus btfn which sounds like rust is closer to so, yeah. so you know, in the the so on the one extreme you have like the benevolent dictator for life, and on the other extreme you have like sort of what C plus plus has, which is where you have a uh, you know some sort of committee model where you have a, a large number of stakeholders, um, all of whom uh, uh, can uh, hold up progress if they uh, if they feel that something is being done wrong, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's hard to be nimble when you have the the large set of uh, stakeholders. And um, it's when you have a, you know, a much smaller set of stakeholders, you can be more nimble, but then you have the risk of uh, that set of stakeholders becoming alienated from the, you know, the community at large yeah. or just having, you know, a small handful of people making decisions. It's hard to strike a balance. And I think the best, the best processes are the ones that can evolve. Yeah, absolutely. Like self-repairing organizations yeah. are like super important, like being able to have feedback loops and like actually being able to self-evaluate and be like, is this working? Like, is there something we should change? And being yeah. able to address those problems and being willing to try out new things, I think is like yeah. kind of critical components to an effective organization. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so do, and, and Russ, does the core team, um, uh, like how do, how do people get uh, put onto like the core team or to like a particular team? Is it, and is there, is there like a, a notion of like a term limit um, at, at the top echelons? Historically, no term limits. People are just invited by the team. Um, right now, it's basically in flux. Right now, we have an interim governance body, which is the, 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 the current members of CORE, the, the project directors to the board of the foundation, and all of the top-level team leads. Top-level teams being teams that do not have a parent team. Um, and so... And those, those, like all the teams right now basically work the same way where it's like invite, like you, like if the, if the teams recognize your work and think that you've like, they want to encourage it, they can invite you to the team or you can ask them and be like, Hey, I'd like, I think I, I've been doing a bunch of work and I'd like to help out. And I think I'd be a good fit. And they can be like, okay, sure. Yeah, we agree. But it's not really well documented at the moment. It's like one of the things we're working on right now. Like I'm, I'm like, I can talk about kind of the draft of the RFC that we have in place of like what we're like looking at. Um, what we're looking at is adding a representative body where it's mm-hmm. um, a it's a, like a council essentially where you have the you have a representative taken from each of the top level teams and those those top level teams become sub teams of the council and you have shared membership from those representatives so they're on both teams and that acts as the link that helps with communication between yeah. the the various teams and um, then there will be uh, terms, not necessarily term limits, but there will be like after, um, I think a year or two, um, basically like reselection. You can like reaffirm. I think actually there might be term limits. I think we might be talking about like not more than two or three consecutively, but um, I don't think that's like. I, th- I think the general vibe is that we want to have like some fresh people coming in, like like getting new people experience as well as keeping some of the institutional knowledge, and so. It can be a double-edged sword. Um, you know, the, the Boost Foundation has um, uh, term uh, limits. They, they rotate who's the chair of the, of the, the um, what used to be the steering committee is now the board, and then they rotate the folks who are on uh, the board. And um, I think it's both good, um, but also, like, the, the person who's currently the, the chair of the board, I think, is doing an amazing job. And uh, I'll be really sad when somebody else steps in because I think it's a really high bar to meet. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, it's not that I would want him to do the job forever. It's just that I would not want him to be limited to, um, you know, the one or two year period that, uh, had previously, uh, been the term. So it's tough to balance. Cause like on the other hand, you don't want to have somebody that's been doing the, you know, the same thing for 10, 20 years. Um, then I think you start to get stagnation. Yeah, for sure. I did not know about the rust. Evangelism Strike Force. You I see did the vaporwave? Google it. It came. I did see a lot of very nice images, and it has me sort of confused because um, I mean I think it's hilarious that, that uh, they've got subreddits dedicated to this stuff, but it's. I mean, I'm I'm curious as to like why Rust has this reputation, versus every other language that like like I personally I don't really consider myself an APL or BQN or J evangelist, but like my, my favorite programming languages are array languages, which are not used really very widely. There are a few companies like there's one of those. I'm not sure if you've ever seen those GitHub uh, repos that are like, you know, companies that use Haskell and it's like a list of all the, you know, all, major all, companies all, of which all there are a few companies. 
No, like there's like hundreds that use Haskell. Like even GitHub um, and Facebook. He, lo- I'm, I'm he not loves sure. array languages so much that he won't even let me troll about them. <laughs> no, well, no, you were trolling about Haskell oh, right yeah, there. Fair, fair. Um, but the there's a uh, there's a similar repo for array languages um, that has you know I don't know if it's a hundred companies on there, but you know there's probably more than a hundred companies out in the world that are making use of these, but. I don't really consider myself an evangelist, but I've definitely given a ton of talks that it's like basically like preaching, you know, what you can learn from going to this different paradigm that'll change the way you think about solving problems. It's not necessarily so that you should go write your code, you know, your production code in this language, but it's like going to Haskell or going to, a, you know, array language or going to a Lisp. You're going to learn new things. And even if it's just about the tools like Haskell, I learned about Hoogle which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. There's a Rugal. I learned that uh, Rust has Rugal. Yeah, which is friggin' amazing. Like, Hoogal is definitely, I'm not sure if it's top three, but definitely top five coolest things I've ever discovered in terms of tools or IDE functionality. We should maybe explain what this is for the listener who may be unaware. Yeah, very quickly. um, I mean, it's it's a little bit different because Haskell has type signatures and a really, really strong type inference engine. So to try and think about like something like this in C++ um, or even Rust, it's a little bit uh, trickier. But I guess for Rust, because they come from LL, ML background, it's um, easier. But basically, you can ask for every single function that gives you a list of integers. Given a list of integers, returns you a list of integers, such as reverse um, or uh, shuffle or something like that. And if you wanted to find every function that takes a list of integers, a single integer, and then returns you a list of integers. It'd give you the functions like uh, take and drop or, you know, whatever your language is. I think Russ calls mm-hmm. them take and skip. Um, but uh, it's, it's phenomenal. And there's a few other features um, or tools, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and so the point is, is like you go to these different languages, you learn a lot of awesome things. And why is it that Rust for some reason has a rep, like got, got this mm-hmm. whole subreddit thing of like, trying to sell the language too hard. Cause when really a lot of the times when I'm listening to an Elixir, an Elixir podcast or a Python podcast, they're really doing the same thing, you know, where they're like, you know, Python 3.11 just came out and it's now 60% faster. Unless if you're using NumPy, in which case it's 0% faster. Cause that's actually just calling C plus plus code. Um, and, and they're all, you know, promoting their language. So do, do you know why like Russ got, cause it seems like every language does that. Yeah, to a I, mean, certain I definitely extent. don't have um, like a clear answer, but I can, I can like make some guesses. I think on at one level, the Rust community has like leaned into it and like, has like, they've participated okay, in the meme <laughs> and have perpetuated and amplified it to a degree. I think another element of it is actually just like the context from which you're viewing it from. I'm not sure that Rust has really this same, um, like reputation amongst other language communities as much as it is like more in C++ and C. Um, I'm not positive on this personally. Like people mm. from other communities can come like fact check that. Um, but my guess is that like, like my kind of my theory of language evolution in general is that like languages grow and then they, they like innovate and then they inspire. And eventually like people will like migrate from language to language and but then there are other people who will stay and i think that this is kind of like it goes down to some like aspects of human nature where there are people who tend to be more interested in change and people who tend to be more interested in staying where they currently are and so when you see 
like right now C++ and I think also Haskell in a sense I think was on the other side of this when when it comes to Rust where you get the these communities that where they're doing a bunch of innovation and then a new language comes along that's doing a bunch of new things and all the people who were like chafing under the existing system or were interested in trying something new a lot of those people go and join the new community and you get left with a lot of the people who were on the more conservative happy with the current side happy with staying where they currently are and so I think that that kind mm. of skews the the reaction a lot where like as time goes on, you get kind of more of a concentration of people who are are like not excited about the alternatives that are being presented. And so like from the C++ perspective, you see a lot of this kind of criticism of like these people are like shoving things down our throat and all this stuff because like they see their friends leaving. It's, it's like it's understandable. I wonder if there's a similar phenomenon that exists in like the Kotlin community. Like I don't, I have spent very little time mm -hmm. in JVM languages. I, I think it's universal. Yeah. Like, is it the same? Like, I'm not sure if Kotlin has a Kotlin. Oh, strike yeah, I'm force, not sure about that. Evangelism strike force, <laughs> like subreddit kind of thing. But I wonder if there's a lot of the same, um, I wouldn't call it animosity, but like friction between those two communities where Kotlin is clearly like even more so than Rust is compared to C++. Kotlin is, you know, was purely designed as an evolved Java with nicer things, et cetera, nicer code completion to the point where, you know, similar to how Carbon's being, um, you know, promoted at the folks at Google that are working on it, that like you can take some existing Java code and they've shown these in like Google I.O., <laughs> you know, talks and it's like, you know, 50 lines of, of Java trying to do some immutable class thing. And then you click a button and poof, it's like down to like three lines of Kotlin that like has all that stuff auto-generated behind the scenes. How beautiful is that? Um, and I wonder if, the, if there's a little bit of the same kind of friction of folks that are in the camp of like Java can have all these nice things. Why would we throw away all this tech, you know, all this, you know, technolo technological yeah. debt or, you know, investment, or if you want to use a nicer term. Um, than like to go and work on a, a new language versus the folks that saw Kotlin and then absolutely. And I think Google is like, they promoted it to their kind of golden language for um, Android app development, at least. At least that's what I've heard from like, you know, arms, arm's length distance or something like that. Um, I don't work at Google, but um, I, I, I recall when I was following Google I.O. events closely that there was a shift from one Google I.O. in 2018 or something to 19 where it was like you know here's a support for kotlin if you want it and then it was like kotlin first at uh, hmm. at like the next year's yeah, one i um, i have no insight into those communities but i would be very curious to know so if any of the viewers have any any insight that would be very interesting uh, viewers are pretty smart they might know actually i'm i'm fairly certain hmm. that our our uh our listener or listeners not viewers I guess. listeners there you but go. i guess our uh I'm pretty certain that our listeners are a good bit smarter than us. <laughs> like we 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 have had a fair number of episodes that have just been uh, listeners correcting us uh, about things, and that's true. Yeah, whenever every once in a while we have a listener and a, a good friend Ben Dean, who'll like DM me, and he's like, "All right, I've I have a long enough list from the last like twelve episodes. Uh, uh, you can either address <laughs> these, you know." Just in line, or you can have me on, and I will bring them up in person. <laughs> I think it's that impossible. sounds more like a threat. Um, <laughs> it's 
for like an individual to... to outsmart a group. I think that's, you know, it goes back to the, yeah. the BDFL versus committee, the committee for now. Um, it's like the mm-hmm. relying on group wisdom gets you the, the better outcomes long term, even yeah. at the cost of speed. So, and that's the same reason you're, you're going to have viewers who always know more than you because there's so many yep. of them. Or listeners. Listeners. <laughs> I mean, now that I'm unofficially switching to Rust, I just, I feel like I don't need to know, know stuff, you know? It's just, well, the compiler, Clippy, all these things will just, uh, you know, I just got to figure out the memory model a little bit better because uh, I still trip up, up up on that every once in a while, you know? Oh, right, I got to clone something. I got to copy something. And that's actually, going back to um, the trait system when Bryce was asking how it works, I have not implemented, uh, quote, unquote, I actually don't know what they're called. Um, maybe they're traits? But uh, it's like when you go impl bracket, impl angle, impl angle bracket, you know, your generic type T colon and then a list of stuff. Those are all traits? Those are traits. Or yeah, is yeah, there yeah. another word Those for that? Those are trait bounds like, inside, the, bra- inside yeah. the, the, the angle brackets is for generic parameters and anything you put after a colon is, is, a, is a bound. Um, there's like three different ways to specify bounds. It's not my favorite part of the language, how there's like duplication oh, of syntax okay. there, but you know, you get what you get. Yeah. So those are bounds. So yeah. So those, like, I haven't done anything with them other than, like, try to do something with, like, a generic trait. And then they're like, oh, you know, you can't do that. It needs to mm-hmm. be orderable or, you know, or something. So I have a bunch of std colon colon, compare colon colon partial order, and then hash hash, compare eek, clone clone, marker copy, compare ord. I don't know any of that stuff. But uh, the compiler was just like, well, if you want to do this thing, if you <laughs> want to convert stuff into a hash yep. set or something, you need this. And then they were like, would you like to add it? And I'm like, I mean, that sounds like a reasonable thing that I would like to do in order to get this code to work. And then I just, you know, copy paste. And uh, so that's the thing is like, I don't know. It's like uh, we're talking about our listeners being smarter than us. It's like I no longer feel like I actually have to be that smart to program in this language. Whereas like, you know, previously I was memorizing tables of you know, the one, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine rule in C of if you don't have a destructor, then you need this, blah, blah, blah. And uh, now it's like, well, I don't care if that exists in Rust because apparently I don't need to know it. The compiler yeah. will just tell me. <laughs> Eventually um, you'll get there where you're like, you anyways. know, all that stuff. And then you're going to have, you're going to be like working on actual new features or working at like doing whatever software development you're doing. And you're going to have, you're going to be an expert on something that's going to be relevant and that no one else knows about. Be able to make some cool contributions. So. Yeah, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why they, Rust has the reputation it does. So much it seems has been invested into mm-hmm. the beginner experience that you don't like. You just end up feeling like a superhero, and then like you want to go and tell yeah. people, "Oh my goodness!" Like you know, this is this is so great. And uh, anyways, we're at the time that we yeah, said we would I, stop. I probably do have to uh, stop because I've got to be on a plane tomorrow and the day after, and then just in general. Okay. Is there any, in our last one, two minutes here, is there anything you want to plug or mention that we haven't talked about that is worth plugging or mentioning or bringing up? And no, you're not telling your shin. <laughs> we're talking about the training. We're talking about the training. No, we're, we're giving, this is Jane's time. Uh, you want to be, you want to be my new co-host, Jane? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't mind joining more of these Rust episodes. Uh, I'm not sure about committing to co-hosting, but being a guest has definitely been very fun. Um, the... As for plugs, um, there is a one project of mine that I wouldn't mind plugging, which is Awesome Rust Mentors. So there is like a, a list of just basically like all sorts of lovely Rustations that are quite experienced and have been using the language for a while. 
and basically like the languages they speak, time zones they're in, I think, um, th definitely the topics of interest and contact info. And I, I would highly recommend anyone who is like kind of trying to navigate the open source rusts or like trying to wants to get deeper into it and wants someone to talk to doesn't have rust people they already feel comfortable talking to um you can check out that list and make a friend and you know start start getting better real quick i mean honestly no wonder rust has this reputation it's just too nice what bryce does c++ have any, anything even remotely close to this i don't think so <laughs> no What's the closest thing? Just like shooting a tweet off into like the Twitter sphere? Like you probably will. Well, get you see, that way. if you could join but, uh, the C committee, then you could send an email to the reflector, <laughs> something like that. Um, I mean, there used to be. I don't know. There's there are there are places. The include Discord's nice, but there's um, there's not like an official place that's that's good for this. Does this exist in other languages? I, I don't think I've... I think I recall actually seeing this in your Twitter bio, but I had not... I, um, I, I don't recall who... I, I, delved I, into I, it, I feel yeah. like I've seen people talk about starting it in their own language communities. I don't know if there's any that are like particularly active at the moment. The closest thing I can think of is Bridges. Mm. Like I know Clojure and Ruby are two communities that had things called Ruby Bridges, I think, and Clojure Bridges, which were like... I've actually never been to any, so I'm sort of just making this up. But I think there were like sort of either virtual or in-person meetups slash like beginner weekends where it was intentionally designed to sort of people that wanted to either start learning programming or just start learning Ruby or Clojure. And with an emphasis on, you know, really making sure that they were casting a wide net to get a diverse group of people and that were like really focused on inclusivity and like making people feel welcome. But that's def that's definitely not the yeah, same no. as we have what a Rust we bridge like as a, well. Sort of, it's like a kind of distributed organization of like like chapters and stuff that do I think the same thing. It's based on Ruby bridge. Uh, this is more this is more of like a oh, wow. kind of autonomous. Just it's just a website and people just interact with it and are able to pull and like find people to talk to without having to really uh, sign up for anything or anything so formal. Awesome. Well, we will definitely leave a link in the show notes for folks that are interested, hopefully. We will see how well this Wait, can episode I, can came I talk out. About my train now? Wait, uh, how long is this going to take? It's not going to take long. I'm just going to read you. All right, I'm Jane, just... hang in there. If you need to drop off secretly, you know, silently. Uh... So I love Japan, but sometimes there's like, uh, like an app or a website from the Japanese government that just, that just causes me great anxiety. And so, so finally, the uh, the Japanese bullet trains, the Shinkansen, they now have a a, a way where you can um, uh, buy tickets online. Um, this is like a new thing, like very advanced trains. They're always on time. If they're like if they're like fifteen seconds late, they apologize. Um, they're always on time, but like they only had a website recently, and now now they have an app too. Um, no two factor authentication. Passwords have to be between four and eight characters. What? It does not remember the password. Eight max? Or, yeah, eight max. Doesn't remember the password. Doesn't have any support for biometrics. Logs you out after five minutes. So you need to re-enter your password every five minutes. Please tell me it doesn't save payment it, info. It stores your credit card credentials oh and makes purchases without requiring any additional authorization like your CVV code. And 
You cannot make purchases between 11.30 p.m. and 5.30 a.m. <laughs> it's just, like, exactly I, I, I had to set a reminder to myself that, like, when I get back from Japan, go and delete my payment information from this app for when it is inevitably hacked. It just makes wow. me very sad. Oh. That was kind of worth it, actually. I thought it was and like way, it, uh, it has a UI way, from, like, the worse. 90s, which is sort of what I expect from... You know, pretty much any, you know, government, you know, website. Um, but, like, it, it, the UI isn't as bad as I'd thought. <laughs> but it's just so insecure. <laughs> Makes me sad. Damn. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and have a great day.